Howdy, Hoyas, and welcome to the Elephant in the Room podcast, the podcast of the Georgetown University College Republicans. I'm your host, Ian Cruz, and today we'll be continuing our coverage of the 2022 midterm elections. In this episode, we'll be taking uh, we'll be talking about two states that 10 years ago would be considered unwinnable for the Republican Party. Those states are Michigan and Wisconsin. President Donald Trump carried both of these states in 2016 in a massive upset. Since Trump's victory, Michigan and Wisconsin have gained the attention of the entire nation, and this year's election are no different. Don't just take my word for it. Let's welcome a Michigander and a Wisconsinite to tell us what's going on in their respective state. So without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Leah to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Why don't you give uh, our listeners a little bit introduction of who you are, your Georgetown intro. Sure. So um, as Ian said, my name is Leah. I am a freshman here at Georgetown. I am looking to study uh, psychology or sociology as well as education on a pre-law track. That's incredible. Thank you. All right, let's get right into it. So Michigan, as I mentioned, is one of the three Rust Belt states that flipped to Donald Trump in 2016. I'm, inc- I'm excluding Iowa and Ohio. Sure. Um, uh, in a stunning upset. Like nobody expected Trump to win any of those three states that he mm-hmm. did. Like, for example, uh, he hadn't won Pennsylvania since 1988. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this shift towards Trump style Republicans is here to stay or will Democrats make up the ground that they've been woken up now that, oh, if we don't pay attention to Michigan, we could lose the state. Sure. So Michigan people tend to like leaders who are going to tell it straight, tell it like it is. Maybe it's a Midwestern thing. Um, So that was what was really refreshing about uh, Donald Trump back in 2016, especially considering his opponent, who wasn't exactly known for telling the truth, um, someone like Trump, who is going to tell it exactly like it is very bluntly, was a refreshing candidate. And a lot of times in Michigan, uh, rather a swing state, it's not going to come down so much to the political party of the candidate, but a lot about their character. And so it, back in 2016, a lot of um, Trump's characters, I think what got him the vote um, but unlike you know someone like Reagan, for example, who also told things very straight, Trump was a little more blunt and a little more rude in the way that he said things, um, especially when COVID came along and Michiganders tired of that. So in short, uh, you know, they're fed up with their bluntness and that was, you know, not always correct, not always the nicest. Um, and... So I don't really think that it's going to continue the shift towards the red. I think it's going to go um, back towards the blue. And I think that Trump was really, um, really just a speed bump in that. That's a, it's an interesting take because I've seen people say, oh, Michigan is going to be turning Republican for years to come. It'll be slower than Wisconsin mm-hmm. or Pennsylvania, but eventually it'll get there because of the large working class population. Sure. As the GOP is marketing to that segment of the population, especially mm-hmm. non-white working class Americans. And that's a topic for a whole nother episode. Indeed. Um, but Michigan this year, they don't have a Senate election. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had a very close Senate election in 2020. John James almost won. He's now running for Congress. Uh, but this year you have a very, very important gubernatorial election. Indeed. Uh, you have the incumbent governor, Gretchen Whitmer, mm-hmm. seen by many as a future presidential candidate if she wins. She's one of the big proponents that she, of riding with Biden. She's still <laughs> saying that she's riding with Biden despite his terrible approval ratings. 
And she's going up against uh, the Republican challenger, uh, Tudor Dixon, who is endorsed by President Trump, as well as the DeVos family, which plays a big role uh, in in Michigan politics. And Mm -hmm. Betsy DeVos was his was Trump's uh, education secretary. Of course. But uh, what are your impressions of both nominees, uh, especially Tudor Dixon, because she's a fresh face to politics? Uh, I certainly didn't know who she was until she put her uh, name in the in the hat for Michigan's governor. Exactly. Well, uh, I would definitely say that you're not the only one who did not know who she was. Uh, we had 10 uh, Republican candidates this year, and only one of which um, had ever had any sort of experience in politics, lightly, and that was the former chief of police of Detroit. So of our 10 candidates, five did not, um, and they didn't even get enough signatures to be eligible to be on the ballot. James Craig, the the Detroit police chief, former Detroit police chief, was one of them. Indeed he was. Um, So we had had a pretty weak set of candidates this year. Um, In in Michigan, a governor can only serve two terms and unseating an an incumbent governor after one term is incredibly tough. I believe the last time it happened was in 1990. Um, So it's been a long time and it's it's incredibly rare. And... um, So Tudor Dixon of our 10 was the best. However, she hasn't held political office, just like, you know, all of the others. Um, And she's not a very strong candidate, even against a weak governor, unfortunately. She doesn't really know how to play the politics game. You know, she doesn't she doesn't have any experience in that. Um, Whitmer, on the other hand, is incredibly adept at playing the politics game, which really gives her um, a leg up in the race. In addition, unfortunately, um, Tudor Dixon does not have the the monetary um, allowance to run a good campaign, um, and so she is not of the two. Unfortunately, she is not doing um, incredibly well in terms of political views. She does fit incredibly well with the Republicans, but as I mentioned earlier, it's really only a small part of the election. Yeah, I mean, we'll see how she how she performs. Of course, we wish her all the best. But we do wish her all the best. Uh, I mean, Whitmer is a tough nut to crack. Um, she, is. she is, I would say, out of the three incumbent governors in uh, in the Rust Belt. So, I mean, Pennsylvania Governor Wolf can't run again. Mm-hmm. But I mean, she's more popular. Like, there is a segment of the Democratic Party that loves Gretchen Whitmer. Of course, you, you don't have that for many other governors, except for maybe. Gavin Newsom that comes top of my head. Sure. Maybe a couple others. Formerly Andrew Cuomo, but not anymore. <laughs> um, but I think that that will help her. Like having that kind of personality and support base within the Democratic Party could help her. Oh, certainly. Yes. But do you also think, I hate to play the identity game, but do you think that Tudor Dixon being a woman helps her criticize Whitmer? Or do you think it wouldn't matter? I mean, sure. I think that... Tudor Dixon being a woman has definitely helped her in the race. Um, Whitmer is also so not afraid to pull out the identity card. Um, as we've seen. As we've seen. As we've seen. Um, countless times, you know, being criticized by Republicans. It's oh, it's because I'm a woman. It's because I'm a woman. Um, and I think that Tudor Dixon is a little more hesitant to do that, as, in my opinion, I believe she should be. Um so when you have two female candidates running against each other, I think it's hard for them to – it would be hard for Tudor Dixon to really have that, um, you know, any sort of advantage there over Gretchen Whitmer who plays that identity card so frequently. Yeah. And, uh, well, Tudor Dixon, what's good for her 
when I looked at the primary results that she mm-hmm. got 40% of the vote, like she ran away with that primary. Mm-hmm. So what's good for her is that she doesn't have to worry about consolidating the party around her. Sure. Pretty much everybody, uh, all the Wisconsin, uh, the Wisconsin, the Michigan mm-hmm. GOP um, has coalesced around her and she picked her lieutenant governor uh, in the, in the, in the convention, I believe that the Michigan GOP had not too long ago, which also got an appraise from president Trump. So, it's seemingly that he's encouraging his base in Michigan to turn out for Dixon and Herna- Shane Hernandez, yes. I believe, is her running mate. So Whitmer has had a lot of controversy over the lockdowns. I know that's oh, yes. certainly something that a lot of rural Michiganders have complained about mm-hmm. um, in just about every political sphere that that they can get access to. Do you think that that will still linger over voters' minds as they go to the polls in November? I, I think it certainly will. I think that, that has resonated a lot with Republicans in particular. I'm Whitner, Whitmer, she's very, very good at the political game. She is also incredibly good at making enemies. And of course, that is um, a lot of with Republicans. I mean, there's a lot of, um, you know, especially over COVID, the executive orders, um, you know, in response to the pandemic um, and you know, being using her line item veto um, so much, you know, she's not willing to work with the opposite party um, at all. You know, you'll get, um, you know, something that both parties have agreed on and have it almost passed and she'll veto it and won't get anything done. Um, For those of you who are familiar with the Midwest, fix the damn roads was her her running (laughs) slogan. Um, the roads have not been fixed. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> and of course, as we are approaching November, it is construction season and it is more construction season than normal. And I wonder why. So elections um, always light the fire. Oh, yes. Under, oh, yes. And their politicians uh, rear ends. Oh, yes. To get work done. <laughs> yes, exactly. The damn roads are here. Right. And they are uh, starting starting to be fixed. So it leads, leads you to wonder a little bit. Um, but uh uh, yeah, I think it will. I think it will definitely be a driving force um, for conservatives to come to the polls. I think that also um, with abortion being on the ballot, that is an incredible driving force for Democrats to come to the polls as well. So I think that it will be um, an election with an excellent turnout this year from both parties, which really just makes it all the more contested. Yeah, it, I think Michigan could go down to the wire. Mm-hmm. And what are people saying on the ground about Whitmer's job in office? Do people approve of what she's doing? Do they disapprove? And regardless if if they do or not, will that influence their vote? So I don't think that a lot of people like Whitmer all that much. Um, she has, of course, the conservative side of things is, you know, they don't they don't love her at all. Uh, and even in the Democratic Party, it, she's very split. She has her. Um, you know, very her group of Democratic women who think she can do no wrong, much like any political candidate does. Right. Um, but other than that, there have been a lot of things like like her unwillingness to work with anybody else that have really um, put a bad taste in the mouth of people on both sides of the uh, of the partisan line. Um, you know, she's, as I said earlier, she's incredibly good at blaming Republicans for you know a lot of you know her line item vetoes and everything she's um you know she likes to play the gender card when she's attacked um she would be i think she'd be a very weak candidate frankly if there was a strong candidate running against her 
I don't think Tudor Dixon brings the strong candidate that we need to the table. Um, and so I think it's going to default again to Whitmer. Does the state like that it's going to default to Whitmer? Oh, probably not necessarily. <laughs> um, but she is she's she's who we've got. And unfortunately, we weren't able to bring the Republicans weren't able to put forth um, a stronger candidate. So no, not really well liked. But I think that I think that the election will turn out in her favor, unfortunately. I mean, that would be a, a shame to have another four years of Gretchen it Whitmer. It sure but, would. It sure would. You're telling but me. But I mean, Michigan governors have had a track record, as you said, of, mm-hmm. of being reelected and, of course, then getting exactly. national prominent, pro- prominence. Like Jennifer Granholm is now Secretary of Energy, albeit mm-hmm. a very bad one, if you ask me. <laughs> but, you know, she was your governor and mm-hmm. now she's Energy Secretary. And she was, I think, a big shot in the Clinton campaign. I remember sure. seeing her, I don't know if it was on NBC or CNN, where she, when Hillary Clinton was doing well and they, the Democratic uh, this establishment and the Democratic operatives were very confident she was going to win by the margin they thought she would. And she was in saying, I feel really good. Like, this is going really well. Back when the Javits Center had some life in it. Mm-hmm. Fortunately for us, at the end of the night, it did not. The glass ceiling did not shatter at the Travis, at the um, Javits Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had President Trump for four years. But um, another, like a, a microcosm of the debate within the Republican Party now, mm-hmm. enough about the Democrats and we like to dish on them, but mm-hmm. um, we're, we're, we need to put forward our, our good candidates and uh, hopefully Tudor Dixon wins. But Hopefully she does. But within our own party at the, con- at the congressional level now, so those are the federal races that you do have, mm-hmm. everyone has uh, this year. The third congressional district, so that's like the Grand Rapids area. Yes. The Republican primary between uh, the more moderate or, or uh, anti-Trump representative Peter Meyer mm-hmm. was defeated by his more MAGA, America First challenger, John Gibbs. Yes. Do you think this symbolizes the Michigan GOP rejecting establishment Republicans in favor of those who are more aligned with the Trump agenda? Or... Is this just Peter Meyer was a uniquely unpopular representative because of his impeachment vote? So, yes, the the Meyer versus Gibbs, that's it's a very interesting one to look at. It's a very contested um, little political moment there. Um, I would say that even the non-Trump supporting Republicans feel incredibly wronged by the way that the Democrats treated the Republican Party and, um, you know, especially the president for the four years that Trump was in office, everything from you know, he's not my president to just really looking for a way to impeach this man um, until they are able to do it twice at the end of his term was it was just very disheartening for the entire Republican Party. And even those who didn't um, really love what Trump was saying um, or his values or, you know, the way he spoke about um, you know, his policies in the country still, they, you know, it really um, did not do anything to bring the two parties any closer together. It increased partisan lines um, drastically. Right. So Democrats, they never gave never gave Trump a chance um, and they made politics incredibly nasty during his four years in office. Um, so then it comes down to Peter Meyer and he voted with his conscience at the end of the day. Um, and that was then to he voted to impeach Trump um, and the second time, the second time. Exactly. Yes. 
Um, I think he was just elected. It was like one of his first votes. Mm -hmm, He was sworn in January 3rd of 2021. And then for sure, for sure. So, yeah, that was being one of his first votes, especially. That's leaving a leaving a mark. It it most certainly was. Um, So he was definitely viewed as a bit of a traitor to the Republican Party. You know, he voted, as I said, with his conscience. And I I believe he was correct in doing so. It's his own personal vote. You know, he doesn't have any obligation to stand with his party, in my opinion. Um, but at the same time, you suffer the consequences it, of your votes, right? Exactly. If, if the, exactly. If your party base, you know, as we saw, Myra lost, right? Mm-hmm. And you're Liz going... Cheney lost, right? So you're seeing a lot of those, the impeachment 10, I think eight of the 10 are either retiring or lost their primaries. Exactly. And only two survived, David Valdeo in California and Dan Newhouse in Washington. For sure. So I think that that symbolizes a more rejection of the anti-Trump GOP representatives. I, yes, yes. But we'll see. I don't know. A lot of Democrats were very happy that John Gibbs won. I mean, they funded his primary. Exactly. Well, they put a lot of ads there saying he's the more conservative candidate. I mean, he is the more conservative candidate. I don't mm-hmm. think John Gibbs would even say he wasn't the more conservative candidate the, of the African-Americans for for Trump or, or Republican African-Americans, uh, conservative African-Americans in Congress. So you can certainly double that, if, if not more, with not just Michigan, but other states. Saying that that personally was something good to see is that John Gibbs is the more you know, MAGA candidate. Does it, it means that you know being a minority doesn't mean automatically mean you're Democrat. This oh, is John 100%. Gibbs saying I'm primarying you mm-hmm. know a white representative in Peter Meyer. Yes, um, yeah, for sure. To say you know it's it comes down to policy, mm-hmm. and I think that that epitomizes where the Republican Party, how the Republican Party votes more than the Democrats. But um, yeah, and I think that Michigan is a, is a Im- very important microcosm for the whole country. Mm-hmm. I mean, I said that about Pennsylvania. Indeed. Pennsylvania certainly is that. Um, but I think Michigan also has that at the congressional level, especially because mm-hmm. uh, sure. you know the, the gubernatorial race. I know if Republicans lose, God forbid they do. <laughs> but if Whitmer does win, they'll say, "Oh, she's an entrenched incumbent." It's, it was obviously tough to beat her. She has an incumbent record. Indeed. But at the congressional level, you don't have that as much, especially in Very third true. district. So this goes back to the going back to the Michigan congressional race races as a whole. I think that your map, mm-hmm. your, your district map is one of the fairest and cleanest in the country. Sure. Uh, the current one is a little, mm, I mean, a little ugly, like the map itself. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> With how Detroit's all carved up. But I think that this one... You know, if you look at a map, it's aesthetically pleasing. And I think it it roughly reflects how the party, how the state votes. I I think there are seven Biden districts, six Trump districts. Sure. So Mm -hmm. I think it it, it reflects relatively well on uh, and two of them were within two points, you know, for Trump Mm -hmm. and one of them within a point for Biden. So there are plenty of opportunities. There are four competitive races in Michigan this cycle. At yes. the congressional level, you've got the third district, as we were talking about, mm-hmm. seventh district, the eighth district. So seventh is Dan Kildee, if I'm not mistaken, and eighth is Alyssa Slotkin. Mm-hmm. And then Michigan's 10th, which is an open seat, but John James is the favored Republican. Yes. Do you think that they'll sweep the congressional, the competitive congressional races this November, even if the gubernatorial race will be closer? I mean, I sure hope so, right? I think it's going to be incredibly contested as well, though. Um, because, of course, we have – I think we're going to have a huge Republican turnout, as we said already, because Red of, wave. Red wave, the yes. Red wave. <laughs> because of the hard economic hits of COVID. Um, and that's definitely something that Republicans are going to turn out for. Um, however, we also have the abortion bill on 
um, you know, on the ballot this year. And so the Dobbs case meant that Michigan law banned elective abortion um, entirely. And that is something that does not sit well with virtually any um, anyone on the left. And, in, and there's a fair number of people even on the right who really um, and don't look at that and think favorably on it either. Um, so it's being challenged in court. A group caught a petition through um, that would make abortion 100% legal in Michigan. And of course, that's going to appear on the ballot. So that is going to bring out um, the Democratic voters in droves as well. And so I think we have some very strong um, Republican candidates running. And I really think that they have a fighting shot. I think they have a better chance um, at winning than Tudor Dixon, in my opinion, at least. Um, However, there is also a concern amongst the Democrats that um, we could have a Republican Congress, right? And they could team with a Republican president come 2024 to pass a national abortion ban. Um, so like I the think, one Lindsey Graham is, exactly, is proposing. Exactly. So I think that that will bring out even more Democrats to the polls um, in order to, you know, hopefully elect that and, you know, in their minds, hopefully prevent that. Um, of course, hopefully Republicans will come and counter that as well. It's always the game of countering the other party and who can bring out more voters at the end of the day. Um, I really think that we, you know, we have a, a fighting chance here. You know, you can only see come November, though. Yeah. And one last question is about your state legislature. Mm -hmm. Do you think Republicans and my question is threefold? Sure. A, do you think Republicans will hold on to the state legislature? B, if Whitmer wins, can they effectively block a lot of her agenda Mm -hmm. and then see if Tudor Dixon wins? What changes do you think you'll see in a in a Republican trifecta? Sure. Okay. So let's see. So I think that I think that we have a decent chance at um, you know Republicans holding the state legislature. I'd like to think so at least. Um, if Whitmer is reelected, I think we're really back at that checkmate that we've been at for so long here. Um, you know, Republicans are, I would argue, more willing to work with the opposite party than um, Gretchen Whitmer is, but the We'll say the lack of what Michigan has gotten done in the past four years is it, w- it would just be a reflection for the next four. Now, if Tudor Dixon were to be elected, I think that, um, you know, assuming that we continue with a conservative legislature, we could probably get a lot done. I think we could recover economically incredibly well from, um, you know, all of the economic hits that the COVID pandemic left on our state. Um, I think we could get some pretty um, some pretty moral laws passed and some, um, you know, moral legislation out there. I think that it could really be um, beneficial a lot, you know, as I said earlier, just in the economic field. Um, I think we have we've taken an incredibly hard hit. And that's not to say we haven't been, you know, hard hit for a while now. Um, You know, Michigan has it's it's not on the up and up economically, and it hasn't been for um, a decade, over a decade. So Mm -hmm. I would hope that a Republican in office and a Republican legislature could uh, help to turn that around because Michigan really needs that right now. And one last follow-up is do you think an effective Republican trifecta, say Dixon's governor Mm -hmm. and a Republican state legislature, will turn more Michiganders towards Republicans down the road? I would hope so. I think that I think it works really with with any party in office, because as soon as you see as you know, as soon as citizens see 
wow, we can get things done. I think it it puts a puts the party who is you know holding the office in a very favorable light um, and really turns some more voters towards that light. So I really hope that if we're able to get Michigan's economy back on track and um, pass schools, yes, for sure. And, you know, have some um, have some policies that do not directly confront a lot of, you know, the Democratic ideals, but are able to work with both parties. I really think that we could at least look at turning Michigan into a little more of a red state than a blue one. Yeah, that would be awesome. It would could, be awesome. That would be what a, what a shift if we could see, you know, Michigan be considered a safe democratic state 10 years ago to mm-hmm. being, you know, a Republican favored state. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Leah, for coming on. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so and we much. hope to see you on sometime soon. Indeed. Thank you. It was wonderful being here. And before we go to talk about Wisconsin and their upcoming elections, all of us here at the Georgetown University College Republicans are praying for those affected by Hurricane Ian in Florida, and we're asking for your help today. Please consider donating to the Florida Disaster Relief Fund at www.volunteerflorida.org or Team Rubicon Disaster Response at teamrubiconusa.org. Feeding Tampa Bay at feedingtampabay.org or Rebuilding Together based out of Tampa, Central Florida, and North Central Florida. You can find them at rebuildingtogether.org slash hurricane Ian. And now let's get right back to Wisconsin. All right. And now we welcome Tyler Van Patten to the podcast, a native Wisconsinite. So Tyler, thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about you and and where you're like where in Wisconsin you're from? Like what what it, what's been your path here at Georgetown? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up on a farm in southeastern Wisconsin, Burlington. For anybody who's curious, uh, that's in Racine County, so that's between Milwaukee and Chicago. Um, and then I came out here to Georgetown in 2019. Went back home in 2020 because of COVID. Uh, but made my way out here again, and I'll be graduating this May. All right, that's awesome. Uh, and let's take a deep dive into your home state, which is uh, the source of a lot of political headlines these days, ever since uh, 2016. Um, and Wisconsin, I would argue, is the most pro-Trump state in the Rust Belt, or most pro-Republican state uh, in the Rust Belt, uh, meaning you know Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, I'm not including Iowa and Ohio. Uh, I was going to I was going to argue with you there and say, I think Ohio has this beat, but that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, uh, Iowa and Ohio, I don't think I really consider that competitive, but uh, anymore. But I I think Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania are going to be the key bellwethers to watch. And of of the three, I believe Wisconsin was the closest in 2020. uh, And at the same time, I think it was the biggest win for Trump out of any of those three in 2016. But the key trends that took place in the Badger State were in the Driftless area, so that's southeast, uh, southwest Wisconsin. Uh, will the shift of blue-collar workers to the Republican Party doom Democrats in future elections, or will Democrats make up in other areas? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question that you pose there. The Driftless area is 
a really unique area in the Midwest. Uh, if I could go on a quick tangent before we get to the politics, because this is, I got to proselytize about Wisconsin. This is a cool, cool uh, geographic thing. It's called the Driftless Area because there were no glacial drifts over this like one small section of the state. So while the rest of the Midwest is largely flat, this area is particularly hilly and the, the terrain is just a bit different than the rest of the, of the area. Um, so what that means for politics um, and for you know, modern America is that that's the last area where uh, farms and localities are, are still really small. Um, there, there's, I'm, I'm an ag guy, so I know a lot about um, national agricultural trends. And generally, um, farms have gotten larger. And I'm not just talking about factory farms or, or, or huge plots of land, just the, the average family farm or small farm has gotten larger over the years as fewer people farm um, and things get inherited and pushed together. Um, and that has not really been happening in the Driftless area because it's more difficult to mechanize and have, a lar have large equipment go across the very hilly and weird terrain. Uh, not to mention that the soil is different, so larger, excuse me, larger companies aren't, aren't coming in the same way. Um, and so what you, what you end up with is a really uh, locally driven area. Um, farms are smaller, communities are smaller, and people care more about local issues and people they know. Um, and that's part of the reason Ron Kind has been so successful. He, he's a person that people know and recognize and, and feel a personal connection to. And they care more about that in that area than they do, you know, generally speaking, in the rest of the state or the rest of the Midwest uh, because of the way that communities are structured based off that topographical feature. So I had to give a quick aside um, to, to explain a little Wisconsin lore, um, but, but always happy to do that. As far as the, the question of blue collar workers shifting to the GOP, um, I don't know that that's necessarily gonna doom Democrats. It, it certainly doesn't help them, uh, that's for sure. Um, but I think for Republicans to say, oh, well, now that we've got the blue collar workers on our side, we can just kick back and we'll win every election. I think that's, a, that's definitely a fallacy. Don't, don't just take it easy because we won a couple blue collar votes in a couple of elections. Um, but blue collar workers have largely started shifting to Republicans as the default setting, even if they do sometimes vote for Democrats, especially in Southwest Wisconsin, um, because of that local connection and, and names they recognize. Um, I don't know that that's necessarily permanent though. Uh, it, it certainly happened because Republicans started aiming towards blue collar workers, namely in 2016, but it also happened because Democrats stopped aiming towards blue collar workers. They kind of took their votes for granted. Um, became a, uh, a more elitist party, a, a left coast party, um, if you will. So Democrats realize that now though, and they've started to kind of retrench. I mean, look at Tim Ryan in Ohio. So the blue collar votes are, are still potentially a battleground. So I'm not comfortable saying that we're, we're ready to doom Democrats in Wisconsin because of that. So that brings me to Wisconsin's elections this year. Uh, you have critical races on all fronts. So you have a Senate election. Uh, incumbent Ron Johnson is running for a third term. You have a gubernatorial election where the incumbent uh, Tony Evers is running against Tim Michaels, the Republican challenger. And of course, the congressional races, primarily the third, dist third district, which we talked about a little bit. Uh, we're talking about the Driftless area. 
Do you feel more empowered as a, as a cheesehead or as a Wisconsinite, little local term, uh, that your state is now in the political spotlight? Well, I always feel empowered as a Wisconsinite, uh, to, be, to be very clear. Um, <clears throat> no, I'm, I'm very happy to, to be voting in Wisconsin and not in D.C. Um, certainly, it's, it's great to have a vote that counts. Um, and I know that's not the, the <laughs> discussion that we're having right now about um, whose vote counts and who, whose vote doesn't. Um, but it, it is a lot of important elections happening in, in Wisconsin this, this year. Um, we, we already spoke about the congressional race in the third district. Um, the rest of them are, are all important too. The only other one that's remotely close though is the first district, which is my district. Um, and I've actually, I've worked uh, for Brian Style, who's the current Republican representative there. That district was redrawn a little bit with the new maps. The new maps are, are very similar to the old maps, um, but there was a, a little bit of redrawing around the margins. And so this first district has become um, even less red than it was before. And so it's it's a, a little pinker now. And so it'll be, it, it, I still think it's an important race to, to keep an eye on or to, to make sure you, you get out and vote for because this is where you, you have to kind of retrench and make sure you, you've got your, your guard up. Um, as far as the importance of each of the races, um, everybody looks to the Senate race. And I think most people would say that that's the more important race. Um, but I'm always proselytizing about how important state and local politics are and lamenting that nobody cares about state and local politics anymore. Um, and, and that's one, because it's a fun contrarian thing to say to all my political science friends who are, who are watching national races. But Two, because I, I genuinely believe that it's very important. Um, so I'd add to your list of important races, um, local state assembly races, mayor, mayoral races, city council races, school board elections in particular. Those are going to be particularly important. Um, you know, all, all elections are important, uh, but some are more important than others. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. And I know school board elections are now very much the the talk of uh, of uh, the Republican Party, especially with, after everything that happened in Virginia. But I mean, tell me a little bit more about Tony Evers. Is he seen as a good governor? Is he well-liked? I, I, from what I've seen, he's one of the lowest in approval ratings for governors across the country. Uh, and does Tim Michaels have a real shot to beat him? Yeah, great question. I've got a lot to say on this. Um, I'm going to draw parallels between Tony Evers and Joe Biden. Because um, I think there's, there's a lot there, not only in terms of uh, appearance, although they do kind of look alike. Um, <laughs> they do. <laughs> Tony, yeah, they do, right? Um, Tony Evers was elected um, largely not because people wanted to vote for Tony Evers, but because they wanted to vote against Scott Walker. Uh, it was the 2018 election, so it, it was already a, a good year for Democrats nationally. And Tony Evers just kind of rode that way. I mean, Tony Evers got the nomination because he was Department of Public Instruction uh, chair or director or whatever, the executive. Um, and Scott Walker, of course, the, the thing the, the left was hammering him on was the way uh, Act 10 impacted teachers. So Tony Evers was just the face of not being Scott Walker. He was not really a candidate that anybody was particularly enthused about. And a lot of people say the same thing about Joe Biden vis-a-vis Donald Trump. So this little test of Tony Evers, this is his first re-election. Uh, I think you can look a little bit towards how it's going to, I think it's a little bit of a preview towards how Joe Biden might fare, because no, nobody was particularly excited about Joe Biden. He was just not Donald Trump. Um, so Tony Evers being not Scott Walker is now up against a candidate who is also not Scott Walker, um, which can, 
I can get into the uh, primary T a little bit there because uh, it was Tim Michaels versus Rebecca Clayfish, who was Scott Walker's lieutenant governor. But I'm sure we'll swing around back to that. We'll we'll stick to the general right now. Um, I think Tim Michaels definitely has a shot. Um, Tony Evers is not well liked, as you touched on. Um, the people who voted for Tony Evers, they didn't like him all that much. The people who do not like Tony Evers hate Tony Evers. Um, in response to COVID back at the beginning of 2020, um, he was a little bit slow on the draw compared to other Democratic governors. Uh, but once he got going, he imposed pretty strict uh, lockdowns and such. So on one hand, he didn't make his base happy because he was slow. And on the other hand, he really infuriated the people who already didn't like him because he was so strong. Um, in particular, there was one move that, that really rubbed me the wrong way. And that was in regards to the April 6th election, um, April 6th, 2020, uh, Wisconsin state election. It was uh, the primary uh, for the presidential race and obviously others. Um, and now April 6th, 2020, uh, is immediately after <laughs> the pandemic comes to the United States, which is mid-March. Um, so it was, it was a time of chaos. Nobody really knew what was going on. And people were calling on Tony Evers, move the election so we can actually figure out how we need to do this safely. You know, if we do it on March 15th, that's enough time to reorganize things. And Tony Evers said, you know what? I don't have that power as the governor that constitutionally that belongs in the legislature. Um, so I, I can't just issue an executive order. I won't. That has to be the legislature. And the legislature did not. The, the bill came to the floor. They did not pass it. Um, and then after that, uh, less than a week before the election, Tony Evers decides, you know what? I'm just going to move it anyways, even though I think it's unconstitutional. Um, and that was struck down by the Wisconsin Supreme Court very quickly because, well, duh. Um, <laughs> so... That's just a display of Tony Evers, one, not making his base happy because he didn't do it right away, and two, infuriating the people who don't like him. So he doesn't really have a strong support, but he has a, a strong swath of people who hate him. Um, so so he's not super well positioned for this election. He's very much associated with a, with the COVID response, which made nobody happy. Um, now, as, as to Tim Michaels, the Republican nominee, um, he's really pitching himself uh, kind of in the vein of Glenn Youngkin. He's not super strongly embracing Trump, but at the same time, not doing anything to, to say I'm not like Trump, just not talking about him so much, focusing more on, on Wisconsin level things, attacks against Evers, especially for COVID policy. Um, his big focus, I think, is crime policy, kind of tough on crime. Uh, people still remember Kenosha in 2020. Um, I know I do. I, I live nearby there. And, and Kenosha is close enough to the Wow counties, Waukesha, Ozaukee, Washington, which are the suburbs surrounding Milwaukee and are generally considered the most important political demographic to, to win, to win statewide elections in Wisconsin. Um, so Tim Michaels has kind of a Glenn Youngkin strategy, which I think is probably the right strategy for Wisconsin, especially for those Wow counties. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more as, when we talk about the primary and why Tim Michaels beat Rebecca Clayfish. But I, I think he's got a lot of things going in his favor. In addition to the national Republican environment, um, I think he's got the best uh, incumbent to run against that he can hope for. Uh, and I think he's well positioned to, to make a serious bid here. Although the polls have them neck and neck. If anything, they have Evers up right now. Um, so I, I don't trust the polls too much. I mean, these are, these are the same polls that said Wisconsin was going to be blue in 2016 and said that it was going to be super blue in, in 2020. It was only narrowly Pro Biden, so 
I don't know that we can take that at face value, but that that's my take on it is, is Tim Michaels has a, a legitimate shot. Yeah, I would agree. I think outside of Kansas, maybe I think Tim Michaels is the Republican most likely to flip a state. Um, but let's talk about Ron Johnson a little bit, because I, I know that there's a little bit of a controversy that he said he wasn't running for a third term. He promised two terms, but then he went back on that and he said, I'm running for a third term. Is that going to rub people the wrong way in Wisconsin? Or is the, I think the controversy on Mandela Barnes, the Democratic nominee, enough to to just put any voters who are in the middle, who are thinking, oh, Ron Johnson lied about his his term limit thing, but then look at Mandela Barnes and say, well, on 4th of July, he went on Twitter and ranted about how bad America is. Do you think that that's going to help Johnson? Do you think that it's going to hurt Johnson? Like, where do you see that race headed? Yeah, um, there's a lot of negative attack ads towards Johnson that are running. Very few of them hit the uh, two-term promise, though. I guess that's just kind of accepted as politicians will say what they want one day and, and do what they want the next day. Um, I think that race is, <laughs> it's definitely a lot more contentious than the governor's race, even. Um, people connect that race to the, the fundamental abstract, where is America going a lot more than, than the governor's race, which is a little more um, home issues oriented. Um, I am less confident about making predictions about that, that Senate race. Um, Johnson definitely has more baggage than Michael does, and Barnes has more more baggage in terms of uh, his positioning than than Evers does. Um, I, I have to take a moment of pause before talking about that that Senate race because it's there, there's too much kind of orbiting the atmosphere and nothing really grounding us to understand that that Senate race. It's it's a really tough one to, to unpack. I mean, uh, yeah, the polls showed Mandela Barnes and it was like flipping and very close. And I think a new poll from uh, the Trafalgar group just had uh, Johnson up by a couple of points. We'll see how he feels at the end of the day. I think that Ron Johnson is, compared to a lot of the Republican senators, I think is considered pretty popular, at least among na- national Republicans. Uh, Wisconsin Republicans, of course, can can differ on that if, if that's what's different on the ground. But I think Ron Johnson... Is certainly seen as very strong, I think, on the China issue and on uh, foreign policy in that regard. Yeah, on, on China, and he's also the face of the Hunter Biden investigation. So I think partially his fate will, will depend on how that turns out or how it's going in the weeks preceding the election. Um, and, and while we're talking about polls, I will say I noticed that the, the polls currently have Evers up by about two points, um, but have Johnson and Barnes neck and neck. Um, which I think is really interesting. I would have expected, if anything, um, Michaels to be be ahead or that to be even, and then Barnes to be ahead of Johnson. Um, but right now they have Johnson performing better compared to Michaels. And uh, I, I can't really explain why that is. I don't know. I might, I might say that that could be an incumbent factor. I don't know whether that's um, what, what influences voters saying, oh yeah, I'm just going to keep the status quo. Well, to be honest, if you look at the status quo, do you really want to keep the status quo? But um, as we as we hinted before, is that the gubernatorial race had a contested Republican primary. I know Democrats, Mandela Barnes won easily, and, and of course, Evers won easily as the incumbent. But Tim Michaels and former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Cleefish, uh, who had the, the endorsement of Scott Walker, and, and of course, Tim Michaels had the endorsement of uh, Donald Trump. What is your takeaway from that primary, and what does it mean for the Wisconsin GOP as a whole? Yeah, 
yeah, definitely. That's a, a great story. I'll, I'll go through and I'll kind of weave a little bit of a yarn here to make sure that, that those who are unacquainted with Wisconsin politics can, can follow along. Um, so I think first you got to go back to the Walker years. Scott Walker, obviously governor of Wisconsin, was first elected in 2010, um, riding the, the Tea Party wave. I don't, I don't know that I'd say he was 100% Tea Party, but definitely, definitely rode that wave. Um, made it into office generally. At the time, he was considered um, outside of the, the Wisconsin uh, Republican establishment. Um, he had a, a much stronger anti-union focus, um, a, a bit more Tea Party in every aspect, although not, not fully you know, Ron Paul, but a more popular version. <laughs> um, and he uh, survived a recall election. He was the first governor in the United States to ever survive a recall election, although now Gavin Newsom has also uh, survived one. Um, and then one re-election after that. So he won three elections for governor. Um, and it, on his fourth election, which would be for his third term, because the recall election was in the middle of one, uh, that's when he lost to Tony Evers in 2018. And a lot of people just largely blamed the national environment and Walker's ties to Donald Trump. Um, and, and that was really just the the long and the short of, of that election and why Tony Evers won. Uh, Scott Walker, immensely popular in the state of Wisconsin, especially with Republicans, but just in general. Uh, people like Scott Walker. He's young. Um, he he didn't feel like he was part of the establishment, but he wasn't by any means kooky. Um, he speaks uh, forcefully, but not in a way that, that scares anybody off. He just he feels like a guy you can trust. It's his, his whole persona, his whole vibe, um, who will make tough decisions, but we'll, we'll kind of make them with a smile. Um, so people like Scott Walker, um, people have expected Rebecca Clayfish to run. She's been largely been seen as his heir. He's been um, always vocally behind her. Um, everybody knew she was going to run for this governor race. Um, she was the favorite to win. Nobody really knew who would challenge her. Um, you know, maybe one of the, the sitting Congress members or, you know, um, if Tommy, if Tommy Thompson ran for governor again, which he probably would never do, um, but if he did, he would be perhaps the only person who, who could have beat Clayfish, most people thought. Um, Clayfish now, however, is generally seen as part of the establishment. She's kind of the bridge between Scott Walker and the um, Wisconsin State Assembly a, a little bit there. And uh, even though she, she's very Walker-esque, she's now seen as more established Republican because people are comparing her to Trump to determine what the establishment is. You know, Trump is anti-establishment. She's not fully Trumpy. She's more like Scott Walker. Scott Walker's been around before Donald Trump. Therefore, she is more establishment. It's kind of the calculus people were making um, in, the, in the backs of their minds. Um, and the fact that she had support from a former governor, from a lot of the legislature, it felt like um, the cards had already been counted before the election happened and, and she was, was always the favorite to win. Um, and she, she makes a lot of sense on paper as a candidate. I mean, former lieutenant governor tied to a, a popular former governor. Um, she's a mom who is, used to be a nurse and has beat cancer. I mean, come on. You got a, a candidate profile right there. She's also uh, from one of the wild counties. So that's, again, regarded as the most important demographic in Wisconsin, that geographic area. Just, I guess, for, for those uninitiated with Wisconsin geography, you have Milwaukee city of Milwaukee, which is urban, and Milwaukee County, which is, is largely um, just Milwaukee and slightly surrounding areas. But that's 
that's the city. Um, and then surrounding Milwaukee, the counties that surround it are Washington, Ozaki, and Waukesha County, and also Racine County, a little mile. Um, <clears throat> those counties are mostly suburbs, uh, not Racine, but the wild counties are mostly suburbs. And historically, um, they had been the uh, Republican support in Wisconsin and the, the rural areas with the Democratic support, obviously that that changed over the, the latter half of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st. Um, and the way it's shaken out now, the rural areas are, are usually overwhelmingly Republican. Um, you've got Madison and Dane County in the middle of the state, which are very, very liberal. Um, that's where the, obviously the state capital is, but also the University of Wisconsin, everybody associated with that. Then you've got Milwaukee County, which of course very blue. And then the, the counties surrounding Milwaukee are really where the, where the battleground happens. And it's, um, it's white suburban voters, especially women, who are the pivotal voters. They're the ones who voted for Trump in 2016 and surprised everybody because nobody was paying attention to them. Um, and they're the ones who got uncomfortable with Trump by 2020 and couldn't bring themselves to vote for him again and voted for Biden and had him win the state. Um, so with that in mind, looking at the upcoming gubernatorial election, you think, all right, we want the candidate who is most likely to win uh, suburban women in the wild counties, really. And you'd think Rebecca Clayfish would be the obvious choice. Um, but she didn't poll well <laughs> with suburban women <laughs> in Wisconsin. They, for some reason, didn't like her. Nobody saw that coming, um, but they were kind of tired of her. They they wanted something fresh. They They felt that she didn't uh, represent something new and exciting. She didn't represent a, uh, a GOP that was aligned with the, the national GOP and where it should be headed um, for the, the next decade. Um, Tim Michaels, however, uh, comes along. He's got the successful businessman background that Trump had, but at the same time, he's not nearly as inflammatory as Trump was. He's not connected to... Uh, previous policy decisions or, or super strong vocal support of the um, most controversial Trump policies. Um, so in the same way, Glenn Youngkin was able to succeed by uh, being a member of the Trump party without being connected to Trump, Tim Michaels won those voters. Um, and so that that's, I think, a signal to the Wisconsin GOP um, that vibes are important <laughs> more than resume. Um, which historically political parties have been slow to pick up on because to party leaders, resumes are important. <laughs> um, but voters don't, don't consider that. Voters are thinking in the two weeks preceding the election. They're not thinking about the 20 years to the same extent that party leaders are. Yeah, I think you're right that there's a lot of anti-establishment feeling around Wisconsin in particular. I think the, the Driftless area go, I think, heavily for Michaels. I think that they're more fiscally moderate than the conservative norm, but they're also more conservative than uh, I think the norm. So I think that that's, yeah, I, I guess that's part of it. Um, I think, I think, um, I'm sorry. Uh, I think that's part of it. Um, but looking at background, um, Tim Michaels ran a manufacturing corporation for many years in the state of Wisconsin. So he's heavily associated with blue collar votes, um, the manufacturing sector of which Wisconsin has one of the highest percentage uh, in the nation of jobs that are blue collar, especially manufacturing and especially in the Driftless area. Um, so 
part of it is just vibes. Um, it, it's not just um, who was positioning how on social issues. Um, a lot of it is just personal. And they, um, Tim Michaels, um, he, he's ran a really a vibes driven campaign. He hasn't really run a super strong issues campaign except against Evers, where he's saying these things Evers have done, I disagree with. He hasn't really put forward a, here's a grand master plan for all the, the issues and policies that I'm, I'm gonna enact as governor. And a lot of that is a little bit of a question mark. And I think that was part of his strategy in running against Clayfish, because Clayfish is obviously associated with specific policies from the Walker years. Um, so not having those ties to policies um, and, and being able to be more vague was an asset to Tim Michaels in the primary. Um, but now that it's coming down to the general, and it's not a question of Republicans voting for Tim Michaels, it's a question of Wisconsinites voting for Tim Michaels, he's starting to move a little more towards the middle on social issues too. The other day, I think it was either yesterday or two days ago, um, he backtracked some remarks about abortion. Um, he was really getting hammered for remarks he made saying that he would not allow exceptions for rape or incest in a perfect abortion law, which is crazy. Um, and, and yesterday he said, like, actually, I would allow those exceptions. Like, of course you should. And that's what's um, going to be more popular with Wisconsin voters anyways. So um, a little bit of it is uh, just the primary positioning and the asset to Michael's head and his ability to be vague. Um, and a little bit of it is uh, questions as to who was actually more conservative. Yeah, I think that that's certainly something that the, well, I will, we'll see how the, how the, how Tim Michaels would govern as governor, should he win uh, and how well or not. I mean, I think Youngkin kind of, I was thinking about this actually earlier today about how Glenn Youngkin, you know, portrayed himself very well as this fine line more yeah you could say more moderate republican but as governor like he's even proposing potential abortion restrictions in virginia so i mean that that's we'll see if that plays out in wisconsin i mean wisconsin has um i think that they're that trigger law so i think abortions are pretty much banned in wisconsin as of right now so i think that that might i don't know if that will affect uh michael's campaign or not and whether evers is going to say well i'm going to try to scrap that law but I think it's certainly something that uh, pro-life voters in Wisconsin may say, well, we've already gotten this achievement in Wisconsin. I don't think if Michaels wins, we might have to do too much work, but we'll see how that uh, how that progresses. But one question I actually really was interested in, because I've also heard other Wisconsinites rant about, about this particular issue, is that would you agree with the notion that Wisconsin politics are too dominated by the major cities? So with Madison and, and Milwaukee, yeah, uh, quick jump back. Um, abortion is legal until week 21 or maybe 22 of pregnancy in, uh, in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, but as far as the, the question of being dominated by Madison or Milwaukee, um, I'm, I'm maybe going to be contrarian to, to some of your friends here, and I'm going to say they are not dominated by Madison or Milwaukee um, in any way that's unique compared to, to other states. Um, and I'll, I'll give a couple of reasons why I think this. Um, First, look at the state legislature, look at the state assembly and the state senate, um, the way those maps are drawn, the number of seats there. I mean, Wisconsin is neck and neck every statewide election for the past five years, uh, Democrat, Republican. And the Wisconsin state legislature nearly has a supermajority Republican. I mean, it's like almost 66% in both houses. Um, and part of that is just partisan gerrymandering. And, you know, it happens in every state. And in Wisconsin, it's happened in favor of Republicans. Uh, but additionally, 
um, it's hard to not gerrymander the state of Wisconsin because you have two centers where the Democrats are, basically, Madison and Milwaukee. Um, and by the nature of having to draw maps, the Democrats have basically naturally packed themselves. So it's, it's nearly impossible to draw a 50-50 map, even if you wanted to, in the state legislature. Um, so to that aspect, at least in the state legislature, it's not dominated by Madison and Milwaukee. In fact, that's a, that's a weakness for those voters. Um, and if you look at the uh, U.S. House maps, too, it's, it's the same thing. Um, there are eight seats from the state of Wisconsin, and every year it's five Republicans, three Democrats. And after this election, it's probably going to be six Republicans and two Democrats when the third district um, more likely than not flips Republican. Um, <clears throat> so I don't know that it's correct to say that politics are dominated by Madison and Milwaukee. I think it's generally regarded that the Milwaukee area is the most important voter slice. So people trying to appeal there, including the wild counties. Um, for Republicans, it's oftentimes trying to convince the uh, suburban voters in wild counties to to vote for them. And oftentimes for Democrats, it's trying to get Milwaukee County voters to show up and vote. Um, <clears throat> but I, I don't, I think um, it's fair to say that the Democratic Party in Wisconsin is dominated by Madison and Milwaukee. And therefore, when Democrats are in power in the state of Wisconsin, things are oriented towards Madison and Milwaukee. And to that, I guess I can see what your, your friends are saying um, by, by the idea that um, Wisconsin politics are dominated by Milwaukee and Madison. It's like 50% of uh, voters in the state of Wisconsin are voting for the Milwaukee Madison party, essentially. Um, but I don't think it's fair to say that, that politics are dominated by those areas. Perhaps discussions about politics are dominated by those areas um, because of the way that the uh, districts are drawn and the complaints about gerrymandering, which to a certain extent are legitimate, but to a certain extent are unavoidable. Um, yeah, they have, a, they have a big influence, obviously, but they also have a large section of the population. Yeah, I mean, you, you put it well, is that they, they're kind of, they pack, naturally pack themselves, and that's the right way to put it, in that I think of the, the map, that the new map that Wisconsin has, I mean, it is a 6-2 map in the sense that Trump won 6, Biden only won 2. But I think, uh, but do you think that Democrats being oriented towards urban votes means that or even suburban votes now as well. Do you think that that will just make things worse in the sense that Democrats are like giving up on rural voters? Like previously, rural voters used to be reliably Democratic. And now all the rural counties nationwide tend to be like very, very like dark red. Is is that because you've seen, uh, like as we've met, talked about, like the Democrats becoming a more elite party is that, and, and elites tend to be congregated in cities more than more than rural areas. Do you think that that's having an impact on how the image of the Democratic Party is in Wisconsin? Um, what I would say is that um, in Wisconsin, it's li a little less about party and a little more about individual candidates than I think you're giving them credit for. Um, if we're not talking about the Democratic Party, but talking about Mandela Barnes, I think you're absolutely right. Um, but there are other Democrats in the state of Wisconsin who are seeking office. Um, Tony Evers is not from Madison nor Milwaukee. He's from some small town in the north. Um, and I don't think he's he's too particularly associated with those places, except for I would say he's associated with teachers unions, which are dominated by people from those places. So he's kind of indirectly associated with, um, with, with voters there. Um, yeah, I would say it's a, it's a, uh, a candidate to candidate issue. Um, when Democrats run a candidate that is more like 
exclusively focused on Milwaukee and Madison, um, they stand to lose a lot. But as we talked about at the beginning, I'm not comfortable saying that the rural areas of Wisconsin have been ceded to Republicans. Uh, and I think Democrats stand to uh, pick, pick those places back up if they run a candidate who's willing to focus on those places. So um, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to say it's not set in stone yet. And one final question I wanted to ask you uh, is that looking ahead, I know this, this might be a little bit of an ask, but in 2024, you have another Senate race coming up with uh, this time a Democratic incumbent, Tammy Baldwin, up for re-election if she decides to run again. Who would you say would be the Republican best suited to beat her? Ooh, um, that's a fantastic question. Um, so I mentioned Tommy Thompson before. He was governor before and then was in the Bush administration. I think he's probably going to be too old to run. But of all the names that could be could be brought back, he would probably do really well. Um, I think the best chance, Sammy Baldwin's fairly young. And I think running a young person would, would be a good, good idea for Republicans. Um, I'm going to give you two names, two Republicans from Wisconsin that I like a lot. Um, both House members, one of whom I worked for. Um, and that's the first district representative, Brian Stile and 8th District Representative Mike Gallagher. Um, both of them are young. Actually, both of them are Georgetown grads. So fun Hoya connection there. Um, and they, they've only been in the, the political arena for a couple of years. So they don't have long histories that, that people can go, go scraping through. Um, but more importantly, they're pretty well positioned as um, having a, a little having the voting experience to, to point to their records and say, look, see, I was with, with Trump on these things. But at the same time, their personas are not incredibly Trump driven. They're, they're much more future looking than that, I would say, partially because they're so young and partially because they're both smart guys who know that the GOP needs uh, long term leadership, not just leadership for the next election. Um, so I think a, a style campaign or a Gallagher campaign for Senate could be very successful. And I also think it's potentially likely. I think that they both got elected to their, their current offices and do very well there. But I think they're, they're both people who could be destined for bigger things, Senate or governor, both on the table. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of those names is one that I've also like Mike Gallagher. I've heard uh, his name thrown around. Yeah, Tyler, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And one last thing uh, before we go. Is that uh, be sure to check out our other episodes where. We talk about Hawaii, we talk about Pennsylvania, we talk about New Jersey and Virginia. So be sure to check those out after listening to this one. Also give us a follow uh, on Instagram, on Facebook, and on Twitter at Georgetown Republicans or Georgetown CR. And rate us five stars on whatever podcast streaming platform you're using to listen to us right now. And we'll see you for the next one. Thanks for listening.